Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the Holy Scriptures. Thank you for the wisdom that they contain and the way that it can lead us into life. Lord, as we consider the topic of money and possessions and materials, would you give us the ability to enjoy them in a proper perspective? And as the preacher this morning, I ask that you would help me be clear and useful to your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So you'll remember in this sermon series on Ecclesiastes that the Hebrew word kohelet, the one translated as teacher or preacher, does not mean preacher like what I'm doing. It's more like a seminary or a seminar leader, someone who would gather people together and set up a topic for discussion. He makes observations about something and then prompts the students to do further reflection about it. So keep that in mind as we think about what's happening, because the seminar today is on wealth and money and possessions. And he, he, Kohelet, the teacher, is revisiting a statement he made back in chapter 2, where he said, from under the sun, from a secular perspective, the best that you can have is to eat and drink. In other words, enjoy the food you have and enjoy the toil the work God has given you to do with your hands. And... And that's it, and, and be thankful for that. That's, that's where it is. Now, he's, in that chapter, he looked at all these different things, everything from it was wealth, but it was building projects, it was power, it was pleasure, and he tried everything he could think of for satisfaction. In this section, he, he, he burrows down into the topic of wealth and possessions, specifically. Now, what's interesting is back in chapter 2 and in this one, he notes sovereignty, that God gives the ability to enjoy things. So there is the issue in this text of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And the question I'm asking is, what part do we play in receiving God's gifts? What part do we play in finding contentment in what God gives to us? So we're going we're gonna to conclude with that, but let's, let's press into this topic a little bit. It's an important topic. Money is very much godlike. And I just, I picked the letter P, and I was thinking of alliterated things about how money is like God. And I got to four of them, and then I stopped. Power, money gives you power. God is very powerful. Money is provision. You can buy the food you need to eat. God is our provider, but money can provide for you as well. Prestige, people that have money are impressive to others. And, of course, God is all glory and prestigious. And then protection, You can buy protection, and God also is your protector. So you can see how the idolatry of money can creep in, how we can be tempted to worship it and serve it and crave it and have this huge need for it, even though it's a lesser form than the true one, right? You can't serve God in money, Jesus says. And materialism, kind of a subset of this subject, is completely insidious. It will creep in on you when you don't even realize it's happening. In fact, I was literally working on this message, and my mom texted me to pick up a couple of our knives to take them to the guy that sharpens her kitchen knives. So I went into the kitchen, and I pulled out a couple of knives from the block on the counter, and I sat down in a chair, and I was reading and praying and working on this. And then I thought, I looked over at that block, and it was, you know, it was one of those Kohl's specials, and it was, uh, what's, what's the company? It was uh, J.A. Henkels with the little guy on the blade. We bought a block of those years ago. One of the paring knives is broken. I think we lost one of the bigger knives. I, and then I, a couple years ago, I got a, a, a Victorinox chef's knife, so there's wooden handles and black handles, and it's kind of mismatched. 
And instead of thinking about the joy when my sharpened knife comes back of slicing through a tomato really smoothly, I said, I wonder about knives, and pulled out my phone, and I looked up that brand and realized I didn't know this. The ones we have that we bought at Kohl's were made in China, and they're cheap. The same company has a version that's made in Spain that's better, and then ultimately the ones in Germany, the German-made ones, are even better. They have two of the little guys that look like Aztecs on the blade. <laughs> and, and I'm writing a sermon on money and materialism, and I've got in my cart a $60 chef's knife. And I was like, what am I doing? How insidious, it will creep in. And you know what it did? Instead of thinking about how nice it'll be to have my, my knives come back sharp, I looked over and I resented the block of them and said, we need all new ones. That's what happens, right? It's, it steals your ability to appreciate the things you do have when you start thinking about what you don't have or what you want. It's insidious, it creeps right in there. Now the Bible has a lot to teach on money and possessions. In fact, I haven't added this up myself, but several different scholars have pointed out that Jesus quantitatively spoke more about wealth, money, and possessions than he did about heaven and hell combined in the Gospels. He knows how important this is, so he gave a lot of teaching about it. And sadly, the church has not been consistent with his teaching. Churches have taught the pendulum swing all the way out from the vow of poverty is the Christian ideal, which I don't think you can make that case, although it's, it's a fine thing if you choose to do it, but it's not what the gospel implication is, or all the way out to prosperity gospel on the other side. If you follow Jesus, you will get rich. Give 10% to him and 20% will come back. You've just got to trust him and send in your donation to the online TV preacher and blessings will flow into your life. You know, and I say it tongue in cheek, but the Around the globe, that kind of preaching is very prominent, especially in poor countries, because people are so desperate. And it, it's, it's not what the Bible teaches. So what is the correct view? Or maybe a better question is, how can we possess money and wealth without it possessing us? How can we escape that trap? How can we not fall into the love of money? Now, in Jewish thinking, in the days of the Ecclesiastes and the Old Testament writing, uh, even to this day, there is a thinking in Judaism that wisdom will result in wealth, and if you have wealth, it's a sign of God's favor. That, in other words, to be poor might imply that you're under judgment, to be wealthy might imply that you're living well and God is pleased with you. That idea is prevalent, and Kohelet, this teacher, challenges it. He does, he, he does not say that to be rich equals to be happy, to be good, or to be blessed. In fact, Jesus will say, blessed are the poor, for theirs are the kingdom of, uh, of heaven. And all the poor people were coming around Jesus, and he was blessing them and pronouncing God's blessing on them. And the rich people oftentimes were outside scoffing and couldn't receive the kingdom when it came. And Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. So this idea of wealth equals God's favor is not necessarily true. The Jewish thought is not right there. Now, our text today is going to challenge us. And it would be helpful if you had it in front of you. It would be helpful if you maybe even took the back of your bulletin. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a, an illustration to draw, something to draw. You can picture it in your mind if you don't wanna draw it. The page number in a pew Bible is 555. Can't be easier than that. 555, that's where this section is. And, and we read half of the unit. The literary unit goes from chapter five, verse eight, to chapter six, verse nine. But I stopped the reading at verse 20 because it's the top and central thing. Chapter 5, verse 20 is the central point 
that Kohelet is teaching us today. Now, here's the, here's the picture I want you to imagine. Or it, literally, you can draw this on the back of your bulletin. Think of an Olympic um, medal platform for when you win and they, they put the medals on people. Imagine steps going up like this to a top step. There is a literary device that in the Old Testament was used often that built like steps an idea, another idea, another idea to the top idea, and then it would go back down the same steps and they would match. So if you draw like steps, have A on the ground, go up one, have B on that, go up one, have C on that, and make D the top, and then come back down and have C, B, A on the back side. We only read up to D, if you will. I'm adding, these are arbitrary letters, but I'm helping you see what's happening here. In this text, he is moving us to his central point. And he starts with, well, look, the big idea is this, verse 20. I want us, we don't think like the Hebrew thinker. We're way more linear. And let me tell you where we're going. We're going to verse 20, which is that God keeps us occupied with joy. That is central. God keeps us occupied with joy. That is what Kohelet saw as the good thing to reflect upon, that the gifts are God's and the ability to enjoy them come from him. So God keeps us occupied with joy. Now, how does he get there? Well, in verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8, through verse 12, 8 through 12 is the first step, letter A, if you will. And this is about not finding satisfaction in the love of money. To love money will never satisfy you. So what does he say about this greed, this love of money? Well, he says, first of all, don't be amazed at economic injustice. If you look out in the world and you see a province that has oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness... Don't be amazed at the matter. It shouldn't surprise you. It's the love of money that is driving that. And he makes the point in here that don't be amazed that the high official, there's a high official, some government person, some leader in charge, there's a higher person over him and a higher person over that person, and those at the top are watching over each other, and the rich keep protecting their riches. And there are demands placed in the structure of greed, and we say the rich keep getting rich and the poor keep getting poorer. He says this right here. This is not a new concept. There is injustice in the system caused by greed. And then the love of money cannot satisfy. And he, he makes the point that those who eat increase. As wealth increases, those who eat it increase. In other words, if you have something, let's say a car, and then you increase and have a second car. Now you have eight tires, eight, eight brakes, you've got two oil changes, now you've got multiple mechanics, you have different people driving it, gas station attendants, all these people that are needed to care for the stuff you own. This keeps multiplying out. You have a swimming pool. There's a chemical company that has to come and treat it. Somebody that has to skim it. You, you have a vacation home. Somebody has to rent it out. Somebody has to manage it. All of a sudden, as wealth goes up, so do the people that use it. And the wealth, wealthy person basically gets to watch this happen. Is not really enjoying the stuff because he's just managing it and watching all that go on. Keep in mind, the seminar leader is making this observation. Under the sun, from a secular perspective, as you get more and more stuff, more and more people are using your stuff. You know, if you have a truck and I need to tow something, can I borrow it? <laughs> right? People start coming around that eat up the stuff. He's making this observation for us to reflect upon. And then he comes to a proverb. And in, in my Bible, I actually drew a red box around the proverb in verse 12, and I drew a red box around the proverb in verse 9 of the next chapter, because these are the very bottoms of the steps. And the proverb, the first one is this. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, 
but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Think about that. A person who is a laborer has a job, and he's grateful that he got to work today, which meant he came home from work and put food on the table, ate it, and went to sleep tired. The rich person never worries about where his meal's coming from. What the rich person does is worries about what's the market doing? How are my investments? Did I make a bad one? Should I move my retirement from this mutual fund to this one? Should I be in bonds or stocks right now? And you can stay up late at night worrying about whether or not you'll run out of money. Does that describe you? Do you have the peaceful sleep of the laborer who ate and went to bed, or are you up at night worried, even though you can have as many meals as you want? Food is never a worry. A different worry takes over. Kohelet says that there is a problem that happens with the love of money that causes an anxiety to creep in that will steal your peace and your sleep. That's the first step. Now he goes up to another step. The second step I could call is the darkness of not enjoying riches. So if the first step was A, as I called it, is no satisfaction in the love of money, B now is darkness of not enjoying riches. Riches, he says, are kept and not used to the damage of the owner. You know, like money could bless you and you're not using it for that. Again, my mom made a comment to me the other day that something was wrong in the bathroom with a toilet, and my dad can fix anything, has always been able to do that. But he's, he's approaching 80, and he finally said, just call a plumber. <laughs> uh, literally, like, I was so proud. Like, that was a good move, because he doesn't need to be setting a toilet just to save 100 bucks or whatever. He's retired well or super frugal, and it's like, yeah, that's an example of what to do. It blessed him, but there's this idea of I can't use it because I might not have it, and that is bad. That's a darkness of soul that happens. Or he talks about the person, and I'll put it this way, who gambled on a bad investment and lost everything, and now has nothing to give to his kids. Wiped out. And Kohelet says, listen, you take nothing in, you bring nothing into the world, and then you take nothing out. As you came in, so you go out with nothing. Very morbid thought. See, as he goes up the steps, Kohelet keeps going to death. That keeps being his refrain. He keeps going back to what happens when we die, which is not a bad question to ask. So that's verses 13 to 17. And then the next step is now what is good? This is verses 18 and 19. He's asking on this step, the third one, what is good? And on the parallel side, he'll, he'll ask what is bad. But here's what is good. What is good in verse um, 18 and 19? Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat, drink, find enjoyment in the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. That's the sovereign part. Not only does God provide stuff, but he provides the ability to enjoy it. This is a good thing. And for this person to accept this and rejoice in his toil, this is God's gift. This is the gift of God. So in this step, he's saying this is what is good. God gives this. And then verse 20, the very top of the step is my letter D, for he will not remember much the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is enjoy the moment with God. Live in it. If you have something God's provided, thank him for it, rejoice in it, Enjoy God in that. Now he's going to come back down the step in, in the next one. Now the question is, what is bad? In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what is bad? There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, he says. It lies heavy on mankind. 
a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing in all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. This is the other side of that sovereignty thing. This is someone who is really wealthy. God has poured blessings on him, and this person can't enjoy them. The world is full of such people. We see them all the time. Maybe you are one. Maybe you know one. Somebody who is totally independently wealthy, has lots of stuff, and does not ever seem to be joyful. This is the Ebenezer Scrooge type. This is the person who just can't be grateful. And there's a mystery in what happens here. It's having wealth without enjoying it. So listen, if you are like some people I know that pray often for the lottery, that's not enough. Pray for the ability to enjoy it when you hit. (laughs) I'm not teasing there. I'm serious. What good is it to get rich and be miserable? It'd be better to be poor and happy, says Kohelet. So that's the, that's the next step coming down. So now the next one is darkness part two. And this is verses three, three to six. In Hebrew thinking, to have lots of offspring, lots of kids is a sign of God's favor and blessing. What if you have 100 kids and you live many years? Later he'll say you live 2,000 years. He's, now he's going morbid on this one. It's a darkness to have those blessings and not be able to enjoy them, to have misery with it where it's a grievous thing. You father a hundred children, live many years, and the soul is not satisfied with life's good things and has no good burial. You don't end well. Maybe, I don't know why. Maybe, maybe you're estranged from your kids and they don't even want to bury you. Who knows what happens here? Something bad, though. And he has the morbid thought it would be better to be a stillborn person and not see any light than to see some light, but then it's always darkness for you even a long life with many offspring and lots of grandkids or whatever. He's coming down the steps. And then the last one, there's no satisfaction, part two here, verses seven through nine. And seven through nine, he talks about the toil that we do to have food to eat, but then the next day, you're hungry again. You can't stop this cycle. You have to keep working and keep eating, and you're hungry again. And he talks about how it's better to enjoy what you can see, the thing you actually have in front of you, than the thing you can't get. We might say a proverb like this, the bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? It's better to have one that you've got rather than the two that you think you're gonna get. And, and this one, I drew a box around it. He concludes it in verse nine with a proverb. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. That's basically the bird in the hand and two in the bush. The idea of what you can see in front of you is better than an appetite for something else that's not yet being satisfied. So here, here he comes down with his, his whole stepping system. It's called a chiasm in Hebrew. It's a literary device. Why they like this, I don't know. But you have to see these parallels. And when you start looking at the words, not satisfied, not satisfied, eyes, eyes, proverb, proverb, it's really, really, it's not coincidental. This is intentional. Now notice something in the New Testament. Jesus and Paul sound a whole lot like Kohelet when they talk about money and possessions. Our gospel passage today from Matthew, Jesus says, he's talking about laying up treasures in heaven, and he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's one of the steps of Kohelet's structure. Darkness around the topic of money and possessions. The eye is the lamp of the body. What you look at, what you desire, what you see. It leads to coveting, it leads to idolatry, it leads to darkness. Jesus teaches quite a bit about this. And he comes down and he says, you can't serve two masters. You'll either be devoted to one and despise the other or, or vice versa. You cannot serve God and money. 
One will trump out over the other one. So which is it that you serve? And to, to Paul's teaching, the Apostle Paul, in uh, 1 Timothy, what is it, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, well, let me just read this to you. This paragraph is worth, frankly, it's worth memorizing. I just haven't memorized it yet. He says, godliness with contentment is great game, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Again, sounds like the teacher, right, from the seminar, Kohelet? But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Note, it's not money. It's the love of money. That's the problem. God is a blesser who gives good things. In fact, Jesus, in, this, in that same section of Matthew, uh, six, or Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, ask and it will be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. If you're though evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So we have a heavenly Father who loves us, who owns all things, and wants to use those things to bless us. And what we do is we tempt to say, give me the blessings, but you bless or stay away. I don't want your, the implications of it. I don't want your rules and requirements. I want free and reckless use of your blessings. I don't want to have to submit to you. That's what happens in the world. But we're missing out on the goodness of the giver. He's better than the gifts. So where does this take us? What's the human responsibility part? Well, one, ruminate on the gospel itself. Consider these words from 2 Corinthians 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus left heaven, entered humanity, lived a working class life, died on a cross in shame to take our sin, our pain, our brokenness, our guilt, and the wrath of God on himself so that we might have his righteousness, so that we can be reconciled with him, so we could be called friends of God. That is good news. Ruminate on that. Think about that. Remind yourself of his poverty and the blessing and riches it brings to you. Secondly, pray to your father about things. Jesus said, ask and you will receive. It's okay to want stuff and need stuff. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. Ask for it. <clears throat> Don't be afraid to ask for it, <clears throat> but ask that you would enjoy it as well. <clears throat> Finally, see wealth as a way to have fellowship with God and one another. Use the stuff to enjoy God. You know, we pray over our meals, many of us, and thank God for the food, but do we pray over our car when we get in it to come to church or drive somewhere? Do we thank God for our home when we're in it? Do we thank God for the sunshine? Do we thank God? Did you walk into your closet today and have a dozen shirts to pick from? That's an abundance. Thank God for the, the choice, the option. All these different things cultivate that kind of gratitude and recognize it's fellowship with him, enjoying it with him. Remember, the, the top of the pyramid is about God's contentment. We don't pay attention to the time when, when we're, we're occupied with joy because God is giving us that joy. It's fellowship with him. And so it's fellowship with him and it's fellowship with other people. Use stuff in this life to bless others. That's how you store treasures in heaven, Jesus teaches let me conclude quickly with a parable that Jesus, or an example of what Jesus had. Ten lepers come to him, and he healed them all. And he told them to go show themselves to the priests and offer the gifts for their cleansing. And they went off, and they were all healed as they went. One of them came back, and he was a Gentile. 
And Jesus said, we're not all 10 cured? Where are the rest of them? Why is only this Gentile returned to give thanks? He had the right posture, the returning in gratitude to God for his blessings. Let's, let's cultivate that in our lives. And, and that's the human part of this. And God's sovereignty, he'll give us what he wants to give us, but pray that he would give us the ability to enjoy it and have fellowship with him and one another. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.